Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. My name is Salim Qasim, I'm the chief editor of the Muslim Vibe and your host for this week's podcast. This week we're asking the question, are we going to face a new Muslim genocide in the West? To help me navigate this tough topic, I'm joined by Imran Shah and Haseeb Rizvi. Imran Shah is Manchester born and raised and first got into activism whilst at university for the Palestinian cause in 2009. He has subsequently been involved in numerous campaigns, election campaigns and initiatives all focused around Islamophobia or the pro-Palestinian cause. Imran is currently head of the Muslim Public Affairs Committee, commonly known as MPAC or MPAC UK. Haseeb Rizvi is a graphic designer, digital marketer and Muslim activist. Haseeb is director of the Muslim Vibe and Creative Digital, a digital marketing agency in London. Before we get underway, a quick word from our sponsor, Wahid Invest. Wahed helps you become a halal investor in minutes. Clients from over 40 states have already started their journey with us. Here's how it works. First, we ask you eight simple questions to recommend a portfolio based on your risk profile. You then select your portfolio and simply sign up online. Your account can be approved in seconds. After you fund your account, we'll place the trades for you. All you have to do then is sit back and monitor your performance. It actually is that easy. So, assalamu alaikum, guys. Thank you both for joining us. Haseeb, I know you've come a long way from uh, the office. Yep, three years up to me. And uh, Imran, I think a little bit longer, but appreciate you being here. Um, I guess before we start, um, can you tell us a bit more about MPAC? So, we're an organization we set up in just after the Muhammad al Darar incident in Palestine. So, I don't know if people know that incident. It was a time when um, that where a mother, sorry, a father and a son were being hemmed in by Israeli snipers in Gaza, and it was initially reported by the BBC that the, the snipers shot two terrorists, and um, we knew, and everybody knew that actually these were um, just normal Palestinian citizens. So it was that um, incident that essentially sprung off like our well. I would say action on that uh, because um, it's only after that incident that we, then people started to come together and organise MPAC as it was. So that's kind of how we started. We started with an incident where um, media was being misreported um, and in a situation where you know not a single Muslim was taking action on it. So I, I remember the story where you know we were. Uh, we were the only Muslim voices that were actually correcting the BBC and they actually thanked us like we don't get people or voices like yourself or sources like yourself to help us create this information yeah. and this is a time obviously when um, th- this wasn't a, um, a massively big thing but it was happening so the BBC back then was much more compliant much more uh, open back then uh, and they were uh, um, you know welcoming Muslim voices to essentially um, uh, deal with this stuff because they, they don't really get anything at all. Um, so that's kind of how we started. So we started as a campaign organisation. We did other things, and then we realised that uh, you know Muslims generally the reason why they don't do this sort of stuff is because they've not been taught to. The institutions don't teach them to be political as a priority, um, whether as a social or as a, as a religious priority. And as a result, we saw that there was a number of barriers. Um, that were getting in the way and that's when we started to have our advocacy ring where we would actually actively take on narratives or uh, concepts that would we think that on one hand would hold the Muslim mind back 
uh, whether that's uh, within our own community or on externally, um, whether actually demonised Muslims on, on the other hand. Um, and so that's kind of where we are. We're still an organisation that fundamentally wants to empower Muslims uh, and uh, fundamentally wants to essentially prioritise Muslims to understand that you must be political, you must uh, tackle injustice and if you don't, if you don't see that as a matter of your religion not only is there a problem in terms of how you understand Islam but then uh, you shouldn't expect oppression to keep on happening to you as a result yeah. and that's essentially um, the central message we've, we've had many different forms in, in our organisation but that's the central message that we stand for and that's kind of who we are as well Yeah. Um. I think off off the back of that, what what I find very interesting is often the feedback that I've heard with regards to MPAC, um is that the the form of of activism yeah. um, that it employs um, is quite aggressive, and and I think obviously it's very grassroots and a lot of the stuff that's been done, like there was something around a, a cricket club where I think there was a tour to Israel, yeah, um, and through uh, an action alert by MPAC, I think they put, sponsors pulled their support of the cricket club yeah. and. It's it's quite um, punchy stuff. I mean, you know, you're not you're not holding back essentially to mm. achieve the goals that, that you want to achieve. Um, what do you think about um, people who would say that you know approaching things through a more formalized manner in terms of going through you know working inside the government to make this change would be more effective than this kind of grassroots almost guerrilla approach to activism? Well, I mean, there's there is. Definitely a space, I believe, where you can affect change within the system, but that doesn't happen, at least that is not checked and balanced without the right um, uh, pressure outside of the system. Um, and so like, we don't mind organisations liaising with the government, we don't mind MCB or men on doing so. What we do mind is that you, are, you may or you may not be... Um, uh, actually selling the, the, the people out, uh, our people out and and even when we hold you to account to that whether it's publicly or privately your attitude towards that and this is the thing is that even with Muslim organizations we have a very funny relationship with accountability we're happy f to hold like you know public institutions like the NHS or the council to hold accounts like our right to publicly hold you to account right because mm. you have a duty of care but when it comes to our own institutions that suddenly goes away we then talk about Adab and you know, advising your brother privately and so on and so forth and we need to the one of the reasons why we have been so public about accountability is because masjids um, institutions that are there publicly to serve the Muslim community have a public ha have a public duty of care and if they are not held to account to that standard then we are never really bettering ourselves we're never really creating conditions where we have leadership that we that we actually need yeah. And that's why accountability is so important. And that's why we do it in such a, a public way, um, so that it it forces a a people to think that I must understand that if I'm going to get get results, I must have an attitude that these people must be held to account publicly. And in, and like in that particular case, what happens in a lot of, a lot of sort of um, communities is that we still have a very much of a village mentality. So whenever someone inside that community speaks up. Uh, what happens is is that their uncle or their their uh, father gets talked to, and and the whole sort of like accountability just shuts down. You know what I mean? But when it ha when when it comes to us, when we go public, um, they react in the same sort of negative way. Why why are you causing fitna? Why are you causing all this sort of stuff? But then they can't approach 
uh, our family members if that makes sense so they have to just deal with the heat and they can't because we're, because we're fundament- fundamentally outside of that social system yeah. they have to respond and that's why we I think we get results because we are loud we are um, we force them to respond to be accountable and that's something that's very unusual and I think because of that we're seen to be at times um, very uh, aggressive yeah. but it gets results given the context in which we are as people this is the this is the methodology that gets results until we actually understand that accountability has to be our norm um, um, there is no reason why we can't use that same methodology things will change but only once we change and I guess um, to, to bring Hasib into the conversation we've obviously been been doing the work that we have been with the Muslim vibe for the last almost four years mm-hmm. um, how have you seen sort of the impact that impact rhymes a little bit, but have you seen impacts impact um, in in the UK um, in comparison to other organisations and and looking at the the model of how they operate in comparison, I guess, to others? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, as part of the Muslim vibe, and obviously before uh, we even launched the Muslim vibe, we was always involved in um, activism and different campaigns and things like that in different types of communities and stuff. Um, so I've had a good understanding, I guess, of like the different players in the in you know in the Muslim space, the you know MCB, MAND, Impact, on and so forth, and essentially what what we see is everyone doing good work in different ways and and working to their own strengths and stuff. Um, but what I've seen from Impact, which I like the most, is the organic nature of it all. It's very kind of like grassroots. It's raw. Um, it's 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 a lot more principled as well, um, I, I, in my in my opinion. Where I, I feel like the the principles of strength and dignity are what c- come through uh, most strongly with impact, um, and that's something that obviously here with the Muslim vibe, that's what we're trying to achieve as well is to restore that dignity to Muslims. Mm. It's about dignity. Mm. It's not sometimes a matter of like yes, sometimes you can turn the other cheek, but it's about the dignity, and it's not just the dignity of one organization when one yeah. organization makes a mistake or makes a misspeaks on behalf of the community, they've essentially put the whole Ummah's dignity at, at you know, at risk. Yeah. Um, so there is that there is that kind of ethos there that, you know, shines through. And it's, it's very much akin to kind of like that Malcolm X approach, right? Where it's like, you know, um, I, can't, I can't remember what he says, but it's like, if, uh, if someone, I'm paraphrasing, I, I might get this completely wrong. But I think he says something like, if, if someone attacks you once, you, you can forgive them. But on the second time, send them to the grave. Um, now I know that sounds very strong, <laughs> but there, there needs to be that kind of hard, not hard line, but kind of a firm line mm. to say, no, we're not going to accept this. Mm. We're not going to take things lying down, that we are strong enough to, to speak up in, with strength. I think the person, at least the, the overall impression that I've got of, of MPAC over the last few years is this notion of being unapologet- unapologetically Muslim. I think that's um, definitely something that I would I would credit you guys with, in terms of looking at, for example, the election campaign um, that took place a few years, or, or the elections in the that UK was great work. Mm-hmm. Um, that took place, and and um, you know Raza Nadim, who we were just speaking about beforehand, um, before the podcast started, that is just literally going around the UK yeah. to centres and like very very grassroots, going to mosques, handing out leaflets, speaking to people, and there were three marginal. Um, conservative seats that all um, became Labour over the course of that election. I think that's a huge credit to the work that you guys have done and continue to do. 
Um, now, I guess moving on to the actual subject matter at hand, um, we, or, or I guess MPAC, um, you started uh, a, a series of, of articles on the Muslim vibe, um, long reads, actually looking and analysing, um, I guess, the status of the Ummah today mm-hmm. and, and how things are in, in the West for Muslims and I guess globally as well. Um, the first piece was, was reflecting back on, on the genocide in, in Bosnia um, and I guess it called it a, a warning for Muslims in the West today. And I think what was interesting was that I saw this piece being shared out on different platforms mm-hmm. um, and there was varying responses. So some people were saying this is like really important and like we should take heed of what's going on today. Um, you know, the, the parallels that have been drawn between the likes of the EDL and, and uh, the political movements um, back, back then in Bosnia. Um, and others called it fear-mongering, mm. um, that, we're, you know, that, that you're kind of looking to kind of scare Muslims a little bit and other themselves almost from society. Um, so I guess what motivated the series and, and what's been the response that you've received? I guess for us internally, what's really motivated us is that for a very long time, um, we have had discussions within ourselves, you know, what is it that Muslims need to understand what is it that we need to be in order to deliver that message what's the most effective way and so on and so forth and through that conversation we've always produces produced material presentations and concepts that we think that is really worth sharing to the world and we have internally we've always struggled to have the capacity to do it and I guess um, under myself I really want to make this a priority uh, because uh, because as the world becomes more and more global, I, uh, what we find, and it's got sort of reflective on our, on our Facebook page as well, our Facebook page is truly global, probably about uh, a quarter of our page is from the UK. Um, a lot of it is, is engagement from different places around the world, Muslims across the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very unique for, unique for us, and that's because of our ideas. So we want to try and collate a lot of these ideas, um, and the first step of doing so is actually producing them into long reads. Um, so, um, and essentially that's kind of what we're trying to do. So Bosnia is just one concept. The, the concepts of of like how does demonization happen, how does it uh, occur through narrative what are what does it look like what are the stages of doing so and there's many episodes in history it's, it's happening in in uh, Myanmar right now so you don't even need to look at history but there are many episodes in history where the same signs repeat themselves the language may be different the ideology may be different but it's the same stages just quickly do, do you um, do you really believe that in the West today in the sort of civilized world we could see uh, something similar down the line? And if so, how long into the future do you predict? I mean, the, the prediction is harder because it, the society is naturally fluid. And this is the thing, is like you never really know when that spark will happen. You can see the, the factors coming together, but you never really know when, um, um, when the fire will be lit. Uh, and you can see the, the, the labelling, the, the, um, the way in which you are... Uh, talked about the the way in which you are demonized and then the way that you're separated uh, whether socially or 
or uh, politically from the rest of the population and so on. It's a very gradual process. And when you look at not just Nazi Germany, but in Rwanda, the, when you look at the way in which they were treated, uh, they are treated now, the Rohingya now in Myanmar, when you look at even the Spanish Inquisition, how they used to do it, it's, it's, it's very much... Um, what I will say, when you have totalitarian regimes, it's much easier to do it much more quicker. So I think it will be very much more gradual. But as you start to see much more of a decline economically in the West, governments will start to scapegoat more because they want to stay in power. So, but yeah. uh, I mean, you're talking about the politics of fear. Yes. Uh, and like when you look at austerity right now, the way that like there was a report uh, done, it was published in, in The Independent in the UK, um, saying that due to the Tories' policies, 120,000 people have died. That's massive. That's like that's mass murder by mm. policy already. So that's the sort of state that austerity is happening in the UK. And the only way a government can actually stay into power is by um, labelling and blaming other people. And you know the the attack on Jeremy Corbyn is all part of that distraction, distraction, distraction. Um, but also the scapegoating. So the extremism racket, the constant sort of um, need to assert the extremism ideology. Um, so the extremism concepts uh, and uh, is is also part of that scapegoating, and we are uh, the the thin edge of the thick wedge, because now that's starting to go onto activism now, and anything that's to do with dissent when it comes to this particular government. That's why when it comes to prevent, if people who know the discourse when it uh, of prevent, and I don't know if you guys are aware of this as well, is that the the government never really seems to listen to any criticism at all when it comes to anybody whether it's muslims or whether it's from vice chancellors whether it's from anybody at all mm. um and that's because they have a very particular agenda with this and they're using it as a means to essentially a secure power mm. okay? we're talking about the current government yes right? yeah. yeah theresa may and cameron's government yeah mm. so prevent before this wasn't weaponized in this way it was very benign it was very much about like how can we actually make society more inclusive but when when you cut social spending when there is no youth groups when there is no sense of community when there is um no sense of um, you know, uh, opportunity and, and when austerities are really making people feel very vulnerable, the only way in which you can scapegoat that is by actually, uh, uh, you know, making people blame, what, especially white working white, uh, white people blame it on immigrants and Muslims. Mm. It's class, classic white supremacy. Mm. That's what happens. Um, and um, that means that essentially that we are the people to be, to be demonised and therefore we will essentially suffer. And you can see the way in which this government deals with hate preachers. Mm. Like Anjum Chowdhury, you know, like that, that was a, a, a bogeyman that was created by the media anyway, right? Mm. But how quickly was he dealt with, relatively speaking to Tommy Robinson mm. and Britain First, who, who've never really been dealt with by this government, even though it's clear that they're inciting and radicalising mm. uh, uh, and, and causing, um, you know, uh, terrorism. Mm. So... Um, that you can see just by the disparity of how it's managed you can see that there is a particular agenda here yeah. and so when you look at that and you see the factors of um, you know the, fa the factors that on an organic level there is more violence upon Muslims on the streets that's not an organic level because of the demonization people are going out there and, uh, and, and actually causing violence upon Muslims yeah uh, on an organic level that is rising and rising and rising Okay, the and and this is again going to be very dramatic to say, and I don't think we're this close yet. But if you think about it, if it keeps rising organically, 
and you as a people are, are, are constantly seen as feared uh, and, and demonized, then all that that is missing is an organized response to that. Mm. Does that make sense? Well, I wanted to question you, it's just one, one thing that you said. Um, <clears throat> you, you use the term agenda, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, would you be able to def- define specifically what you believe that agenda would be? So, I mean, the way in which white supremacy generally works, even during the slave trade, is that you have a number of generally white people Mm. on top who want to essentially exploit and profit amongst everybody, regardless of colour, right? But the only way they can stop essentially white people, the masses, from turning their attention to them who are causing the problems Mm -hmm. is by scapegoating and creating a language where other people are to blame, Mm. right? So it's it's that agenda. And like for people who are not familiar of how that works historically um, in the British Empire, uh, when it came to the slave trade, um, it will be almost sort of superlacious for me to say it's the white supremacist agenda. I really have to break it down Mm. and tell you. Um, and I've, I've tried to do that right now. So, but what it is, is about greed and power. Mm. So neoliberalism, that sort of stuff. So you have this this global sort of thing, and racism and Islamophobia is a, is a pocket of that. Yeah, it's, That's just a, a tactic that they use mm-hmm. in order to sustain that. But the real problem is the uh, the economic model that we have in the West that is that is based upon the the uh, the, the necessary privilege of the Western elites. So similar to like how in Nazi Germany, Jews are made the scapegoat yes. of of the economic kind of disparity that was taking place at that time. Um, but I mean, here's a question: really, is is that right now? Um, you know, with the discussion of like anti-Semitism taking the headlines once again in the UK, right? Um, it's very like you know, seeing any sort of like genocide against Jews taking place again is like almost impossible to ever kind of imagine ever happening. Sure. But why is it so difficult for Muslims to be able to project that same parallel in their own narrative? I think mainly because um, when it comes to um, both the Jewish and the Zionist lobby, they're very organised. Yeah. So because they've lived that and because they've managed to... I mean, even before the Holocaust, there were, you know, the Jewish people faced genocides before. So it's not like it was just one incident and then they learned. In the same way that we're facing many genocides across across the world now. Um, so, but the Holocaust when it's, itself was a, it was a chance for at least the the Jews in the West um, to be like, no, we don't ever want this happening again. Mm-hmm. Some people translated that as as like we need a state, and that's how Israel and the whole Zionist movement came about. But for those who don't ascribe to those, that, that that idea, um, they 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 made an effort as a people to understand how does this happen because if you want to prevent something you have to understand well how does it occur in the first place mm. and and as a result even for anti-zionist Jews they they are um much more articulate they're much more uh, educated they're much more uh, aware of just how politics is very much a game of life and death mm. and we we haven't learnt that lesson yet uh, and as a result, they they fund, they prioritize, they support the organizations that they think support them. What What do you think it would take for Muslims to realize that? If If obviously the belief is that you know we're 
almost Jewish genocide um, in the uh, in the West. What do you think it will take for Muslims to wake up to this very real possibility as you perceive it? I think, I personally think that, I mean, when it comes to human nature, yes, okay, you need to be put in a position of discomfort for you, generally for you to learn. Mm. Uh, and, you know, whenever we do the war, we, we, ask for, uh, we ask for help and Allah gives us this situation in which we can grow. Yeah. And, and so when it comes to human nature, we generally only tend to learn when there are problems around us, not when we're comfortable. Mm. Um, and... Um, and it, and to be honest, also as well, it's also the lessons that we learn how to deal with that breakdown as well, right? So there's no point saying that oh well, well we're going to have to have this genocide in order for us to learn all that sort of stuff. We can't, we we, we can't even you know, be like that. What we need to do is that we have our situation here right now. We know from history what happened. How do we learn from history? Uh, and in order to essentially prevent this from happening and when we start educating our people and our children to be like these are the problems that are happening in society right now they, and therefore we must equip you to be these type of people in order to deal with the challenge that you're going to live in your life mm-hmm. once we have an attitude that as, as parents and, and as uh, like uh, I mean I don't have kids but like I'm 30 now you know, and I'm already thinking, how's the next generation going to deal with Islamophobia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have to start thinking. When when are we? When are, what is it that the next generation needs to be equipped? When we have that foresight as a people, mm-hmm. because we've learnt from history, that's when we'll start be have much more of a mindset to deal with the problems that we have now. But I think, like even like what we've discovered with the Muslim vibe, is that when we speak out on a political level. And it's not just your kind of like your wishy-washy positive messages, but it's like, you know, this is happening, you need to speak out. That's where we seem to see, like, there's a bit of a negative backlash in, like, the comments and, and the kind of, like, the tweets and stuff. I think that what we're suffering from as a, as a community is almost kind of, um, A, we've become too comfortable as Definitely. third, fourth generation immigrants in, in, in the West, right? Where we've got a good life, everything's fine, we're comfortable, you know, mortgage is being paid for, so on and so forth. But I also think that, on the other hand, people become exhausted from these messages. Mm. So there's always something to kind of complain about, right? So we've seen so many times on, like, the Muslim Vibe comments, mm. it's just like, how many things can we care about? You know, I'm trying to raise money for, like, a... A masjid, right? That's hard enough. But now we're also saying that, oh, we've got to feed homeless people. That's difficult enough. Yeah. But now you're saying that, oh, we need to campaign against the president. Or we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do that. How many things can we do? Okay. So there's, there, I feel like there is amongst, you know, a small group of people, like in a, there's like a fatigue, mm. activism fatigue. Mm. I, I think, I think that is um, understandable. I think, um, be, and that's partly because. It's again because of social media, especially the young generation, partly because they're so conscientious of the world, because they're much more aware of the world around them, of the problems around them. Again, that is because social media opens on opens up that experience to them. Mm-hmm. And growing up, we, we weren't we were the only people. The only thing that we could know is like what our family said and what the TV said. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. literally our world. <laughs> that's only the only thing we could understand. So we were more blind to the problems that were happening around the world just because there's, there was less information put but, to us. Sorry, just uh, sorry to, to cut in, but doesn't that almost, um, it's nice in that intensifies how much we care. So for example, the, 
you know the the incident that you spoke about that almost triggered MPEG. I, I believe it was the the man with his son. You know, the the pictures were on, yeah. the pictures were you know they're all over the internet. Yeah. And I remember seeing that up on the sort of notice board um, at the mosque, and there was a, a Palestine rally that was taking place. And at that time, I can't remember how old I was, but Palestine was the cause, mm-hmm. right? But unfortunately, we've got to a stage where we just ran a piece about um, the, the Muslims in China that are being persecuted, the forgotten kind of struggle that's happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost become diluted, that there's so much out there yeah. that mm-hmm. how can one person care? And, and we have that hadith from the Prophet that says, you know, whoever doesn't wake up caring about my ummah is not of it. But how much can we care? Mm. Like, we, we all, you know, feel the struggle and, and when we, you know, we see what's happening to the Rohingya Muslims, for example. But um, I guess, you know, how do you think we can best channel that feeling when there's just so much there and there's so many causes? I mean, there has to be a... a what, what's already happening is, is that it's very reactive and it's very, um, you know, we we need to meet this challenge. So, for, for like example, in Syria or in Gota, or the, you know, it's, and that, that needs to happen. But the problem is, is that our systems of dealing with crisis are no longer suitable to the crises that we're facing. So we basically, we, we are used to systems where we just give money to poor places mm. and the money will fix it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what our system does when it comes to crisis. Mm-hmm. And that, that doesn't work anymore. We need to build systems that have you know, you know, political or you know, we need systems that will be able to build leaders. We need, we need to build systems that are able to deal with our problems right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I really do think that the, the point of my generation is, is not to try and solve all these problems in, in a generation in my lifetime. It's to build the ideas, the infrastructure, and equip the next generation to fight that fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that fight of poverty, that fight of um, you know, sectarianism uh, globally, that, that fight of um, whatever, whatever is causing those problems, that political fight against Islamophobia, the war on terror and so on and so forth politically um, uh, so like um, so and if we don't give them those tools and those institutions then they will either find themselves in the same situation or even worse and it's it's only when we are able to organize ourselves in that way can we actually see some success mm. otherwise we're just going to you know um, react not think and just give money do dua and there'll be no thinking mm. involved in the process whatsoever so I mean like you're echoing I guess like conversation I think me and Salim have had probably about a million times <laughs> too, too many too many times right and essentially and, and the funny thing is, is I'll have this conversation you'll say the same thing to me today okay I'll have the conversation with someone who's part of another organization he'll say the exact same thing to me we need to organize we need to unite so on and so forth yeah. but we're not doing it yeah. Every single time yeah. I've had this conversation, I've had it with leaders of mosques, I've had it with leaders of community organizations, I've had it with, you know, media groups, so on and so forth, like even like businesses, right? Muslim business owners, they're like, yeah, we need to unite, you know, so we can have a platform, so we can bring change. We support like, yeah, each we need other, to do that. we need to work we need together. To support, yeah, we need to do that, we need to do that. But it doesn't happen, and yeah. when it actually comes to it, when it comes down to like, all right, guys, let's, let's uh, you know, put our heads together and put together a strategy, what we find that happens is all of a sudden out of nowhere the ego pops up hmm. right and we're finding that you know and well, it's what it, doesn't it, happen 
Huh? All work doesn't happen. All work doesn't happen, right? And then we get lost in bureaucracy. Yeah. Like one thing that like I hate uh, in organizations is is inefficiency. Like as in I've got an OCD against inefficiencies, mm. right? And where it takes, for example, three weeks to make a decision on something that can be made over a five-minute phone call, yeah. right? Which is why I love the Muslim vibe. We make decisions in seconds and we get, we get the ball rolling nice and quickly, right? We launched this whole project, what, in three months? Yeah. Um, so the whole thing uh, for us was about efficiency. But mm. what we're finding is even with other organizations, when we've reached out to work with them, is the, the lack of efficiency. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, it's kind of like paralyzing us. I think personally, um, I echo the sentiment on that side of the room. <laughs> but um, I think I've seen there's been a bit more progress in that in that way. Mm. Like we've had um, organizations and, and journalists and whatever in touch with us recently that are looking to collaborate on things, that are looking to do things together. Mm. And that's something we haven't had for the last couple of years. So slowly people are starting to wake up. Maybe it's because our audience is growing bigger and our Facebook pages, you know, has that reach. Mm. But that's, I mean, those kind of connections and, and that kind of, I mean, the, the networking that I guess we've done in the last few years, the mm. network that we've built up, is quite a sizable and strong one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about finding a way, not necessarily formally, but maybe informally, of, of like leveraging that and, and working all the different angles to bring the pieces together. Mm -hmm. That's a difficulty. So like when, when Raza was um, head of MPAG, we used to have a lot of conversations and a lot of phone calls and, and I'd get his opinion on something and vice versa. And I yeah. think that's almost the strength of, of this space. Yeah. That's his favorite word. He loves it when I talk about spaces. But anyway, so that, that's, that's how we need to um, look to come together. And I think that formalizing that is unfortunately very difficult because mm. of the ego, the bureaucracy and whatever else there is. Mm. But if we can at least work within pockets where possible together, that's at least a start. Or at the very least, not shoot each other down, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, of course. Um, bringing it back on, on the, the, the main topic of discussion here. So with regards to the UK, I guess we'll start with um, Haseeb. How do you see um, the narrative or the anti-Muslim narrative as having developed over the last few years and where do you think it's going to go? So if you asked me the same question two years ago, I would have given you a very different answer. And I would have told you that, you know, you need to get yourself a bulletproof vest, you need to board up your house. Um, and But what's happened is I've had time to reflect on that kind of positioning and, and, and think about um, a lot more things that are taking place around um, the Muslim narrative and just generally in the kind of geopolitical space as well. What I feel... Um, is happening is that like uh, Imran said earlier we're getting to a point where the anti-Muslim feelings are growing okay but what we do as Muslims sometimes is lock ourselves up in a small bubble of our own creation and social media is creating this atmosphere um, the term echo chambers is, 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 is being used a lot recently because you know the whole Trump thing and Brexit and so on and so forth so within the Muslim echo chamber on social media, there's alarm bells everywhere, red flags, oh my god, this, you know, look at this article, said this and this and so forth. But what we're not seeing at the same time is the growing movement of anti-Islamophobia from non-Muslims, right? Or people's, uh, people gaining consciousness towards, you know, the media's kind of like... Uh, bias. Yeah, the bias and stuff like that. So I don't think 
Okay, I think things are bad. They're not great at all, right? We're seeing BBC regularly posting out things that are kind of ludicrous and, you know, attributing pictures to the wrong articles just to kind of like frame Muslims in a certain way and stuff, whether intentionally or not. Um, a good friend of ours, McDard Versi from the MCB, he's, you know, this guy is just like constantly like, you know, fighting articles to get them to change small bits of text. You know, they change it three months later. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe that's a podcast worth ha- having soon with him. But, you know, that that is happening. But I don't think that we're at the stage where we need to fear for our lives. Um, and I say that, and I'm kind of questioning myself saying it out loud, because we, are, we have seen a spike of anti-Muslim violent attacks against hijab uh, And I hate to, to bring this up, but you know, at the time of this going out, it already have happened, but Punish a Muslim Day mm, is yeah. in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, so whilst you say that, and, and I mean, personally, I don't... I, don't I think I'm, I'm in a bit of a state of denial at the moment. <laughs> Guys, give me five minutes. <laughs> the podcast. Let me just rethink life. Okay, so I guess, Imran, so, we'll, we'll put it to you in that time. I mean, like... To be honest, a few do, years do you agree ag- with what Hasib said? Uh, yeah, I mean, a few years ago, I was kind of thinking of the same thing. I, I've known so many big name. I won't mention any names, but I know so many big name activists who'd be like, "No, I if if Muslims are not willing to save themselves, because I've been telling them to save themselves, then I'm going to leave the country. Like, this is getting too bad." And I think before the previous election, or even before Corbyn was made leader. I think a lot of Muslims um, that I know are thinking things are really gonna go like really bad because what happened was is that there was no opposition to the government whatsoever mm. then, mm. and you had a government that was um, bent upon trying to use Muslims as a scapegoat back then and still now, um, and because of that, because there was no political opposition in anything, yeah. it just seemed like well the, they can just do whatever they want. Now with Corbyn, it meant that the, it meant that the left can now rally behind some somebody. Mm. Yeah, before the the left were just nowhere, uh, and that means that there is some real opposition, but also an, an ethical opposition mm. to the government. Right, mm. uh, and that meant that bec- the the mood of society has moved more towards the centre. Mm. So with under Cameron and with May and uh, with the legacy of Blair and uh, what's been happening is that at some at one point the Labour Party was more right than the Tory Party. Mm. Yeah. So what's happening is that for a very long time we were moving more and more and more to the right. You can see that in the policies, and then because Corbyn's now. Um, uh, in the in the limelight, it's moving slightly more to the centre, and that's why, like you, I feel a little bit more calmer now. Um, and and like I and I literally, I only feel just a little bit more calmer. But that's what kind of where we are now. Yeah. Um, but like we have to understand that propaganda is about how how to make you feel about something. Yeah, um, and we have to understand that what's already what. Islamophobes have already been successful in making people fear every single aspect of our lives. Halal meat, salah, hijab, niqab, um, you know, zakat, that's somehow linked to terrorism now. Um, you know, charities, they're somehow, some of them are dodgy and they're giving money to, like, you know, rebels in Syria. You know, every aspect, every single aspect is, is there to be feared. Um, and now it's a matter of how to leverage that fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and different people will do that in different ways. So Tommy Robinson or Britain First, they all use that for their own sort of influence and gain. Um, Zionists will, who are big time Islamophobes, you know, like people like Melanie Phillips and um, uh, and and um, 
you know, Gert Wilders and, and uh, what's it called, Pamela Geller, these are big time Zionists, yeah, and they're, they're paid to push Islamophobia. Mm. Uh, and the reason they benefit is because now, uh, in two ways, we were heavily pro-Palestinian, but because the heat is now on, uh, on us in Islamophobia, we do less work on Palestine. Mm. And also it means that if they are able to demonize Muslims and the Arabs, there's less sympathy for Palestinians generally. Yeah, so they benefit and they leverage that from, from their hand. And we've already talked about how this particular government will le leverage their fear for different, um, for for scapegoating, but also to push um, more draconian legislation through. Okay, and and the way the rhetoric that lends itself to that is the terms extremist, and to to civilize and to deal with or to uh, protect ourselves from. The, the, the from extremism so the the offset sort of stuff that happened in the school what mm. was that about really you know at least the way that the media reported it it was about trying to essentially um deal with extremism the whole trojan horse debacle the whole fakery of it all it was there to put uh, the propaganda across that we need to civilize these people so that they can learn to be british um and that's kind of where the anti-muslim narrative is becoming it's like before it's just your problem we need to civilize you now yeah and that's kind of where we are and we, we need to counter that that's okay sure. sorry just um I, I i completely agree and resonate with what you're saying but is that not almost a result of colonialism and that colonial mindset yeah as opposed to the early stages of genocide Yes, it, it is in a way, but uh, at the same time, like a lot of the stuff they did in in the in colonial times were borrowed from what they did in the medieval times. Okay, so the the sort of stuff that the Spanish Inquisition do, uh, for example, um, uh, the way in which they would make example of certain figureheads publicly amongst the Muslim population was used extensively in. Uh, India. It was used extensively across the whole of Africa as well, uh, and there'll be certain tactics that that would be used. Um, the whole waterboarding thing and the whole sort of the way in which you torture people yeah. that has been advanced definitely during the war on terror. But these sort of techniques were um, originated from uh, from medieval times. So just because they they seem to be co uh, coming from a, a a time before, doesn't mean that they will not be leveraged again in order to create a particular result. So in, in the same way that the, the anti-Semitism or even the, um, the, the hatred of, of, um, of a certain class of people uh, mm. is a tactic that you know, Hitler used from, from different places in history, it was definitely used to a good effect when it came to, to you know, the genocide of many different types of people in Germany. So just because it's, it's, it's more of a colonial you know, backshot um, yeah. doesn't mean that it won't be leveraged. Because at the end of the day, when you demonize people, it goes along that road of, of exterminization. Whether it's um, mass exterminization in, in the war on terror in Iraq, or whether it's like home, um, more at home, say, in, in a particular state, but Myanmar or in the West, or whether it's Bosnia. Uh, again, the, the, a lot of the rhetoric, uh, a lot of the um, uh, words, the, the 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 notions, the the way in which they demonize Bosnian Muslims, and they were caught surprised. They had their own neighbors killing them and stuff. Um, the, the way the, the same rhetoric that the the, the, the Serbs used uh, is the same sort of rhetoric that you, you find popping up. Um, and you have to be aware. As soon as hatred becomes normal, 
elite power will want to leverage that norm onto something else for their own gain. Um, and whether that, that leads to genocide or not is always a question mark. But the fact that it's a question mark should be serious enough in, it, in itself. Fair enough. I didn't. I can't. Can't really. <laughs> can't really argue with that. Now, I. I don't want to um, end on a sort of negative. So I think um, the, the final question I'll put to both of you, I guess, is um, what are the solutions? Mm. So you know, one of one of I think our key ethos with the Muslim vibe is that whenever we flag up a problem, be it with our mosques, with our community, whatever it might be, we always ask our writers to kind of have a bit of a solution at the end. So where do we go from here? How do we how do we move forward and I guess better um, the state of Muslims? I think um, I, in a way I am hopeful for the next generation because um, even the um, even for people that are ten years younger than me, they come from a generation that are taking their religion more seriously, um, in a sense that they want to know answers to problems that are in the world not just when it comes to Islamophobia mm. but also when it comes to mass poverty or, or when it comes to um, you know economics or like the environment. Know, environment and so on they're looking to Islam and therefore they're looking um, in order to uh, understand how Islam pragmatically and practically and spiritually um, relates to their lives in a more holistic aspect mm -hmm. and that's very different from our parents generation where it was very much about like you just pray you fast you do all these sort of things and inshallah have some pakoras on Ramadan yeah yeah inshallah inshallah you'll get to Jannah you know what I mean that was yeah. it it was just wing almost, it yeah it's like a, a ritual <laughs> like you do the most minimum yeah. work possible you know to get to Jannah yeah. Yeah? and I think um, in um, it started before, just before things started to get really bad, but especially in the heat of Islamophobia, mm. the youth really want to use Islam as it's meant to be, and that's that is a moral force for for justice and for good, mm. and that means that if your your priority is justice, as opposed to comfort, it means that as soon as you're comfortable, you're not going to stop. Mm. Like lots of people want more peace, right? Mm. How many need stop? when they're comfortable mm. it's because mm. comfort was always their priority mm. right? that's a very very good point actually uh, and, and the more Muslims that see themselves that I am following a religion of justice therefore I must be a person of justice rather than just praying and fasting and whatnot. the more you'll see an intellectual moral revival amongst Muslims generally um, so that's, that's kind of like um, a more internal identity thing and I, f I see that more and more happening, at least with British or uh, uh, Western uh, youth as well. Um, but on a more um, specific thing, we need to be much more fundamentally better at counting propaganda. That's more than just uh, going to university and learning about propaganda. It, it means being good in the media. It means being able to understand things on a narrative basis rather than just countering points. Yeah. Um, and it also means that we need to be much more switched on politically mm. um, and, and how uh, we are going to be outmaneuvered when we, we try to ca tackle Islamophobia. Yeah? Um, but if, you don't, if, if it so happens that you don't have, uh, uh, you cannot commit to, you don't have the, or even the, the willpower or the, or the options to commit to a life of activism or whatever role that you can play, at least support the people that do. Mm. And I mean more than just a pat on the back. Yeah? <laughs> Lots of people like to pat you on the back for the good work, but don't actually support you for that. Um, and, uh, that ca uh, and the best support is not just moral support, but also basically your money and your time. 
that's what it means mm. like if you give your word that I support you when when it's asked of you when will you actually give your support and it goes back to um, I mean this is a, a very again goes back to an example that I like to sort of refer to because it, it keeps me on track in the sense that when you look at Surat Doba what it's talking about is those people when when they uh, see victory they pat you on the back right but like when it comes to the enemy at your door they they don't do anything they just want to sit in their home be comfortable mm, yeah mm. and they don't actually give you any support whatsoever now i'm not saying muslims who who don't support you are a monafic yeah i'm not i'm not saying that <laughs> that's clear cookie <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like but what i'm saying is is that you don't want to be like those people no it's 100 100 and if you're uh, illustrating traits like that you've got to check yourself are you are you really your word Mm. Are you really who you choose to say that you are? Mm. And if you're not, then you should hold yourself to account now before you are held to account in Giamat. Anything to add, Very well put. Um, so the question was about solutions, solutions. going forward. Yeah. Um, so obviously in, in discussion, we, we talked about, for example, how each, at the moment, um, organisation is working independently and sometimes against each other. Um, I don't think that's going to change in, in, in at least the next five to ten years. Um, so I think what we need to do is actually play that to its own advantage where we have a check and balance system, like Imran was saying as well, where we have organisations that hold other organisations to account. Um, I think fundamentally, you know, 90% of the Muslim organisations that are out there are working towards the same kind of um, objectives. Um, and I think we need to understand that. I think sometimes, you know, we choose to do things slightly differently and I, we have to build a maturity to understand okay that's fine sometimes you can do that we won't necessarily always bark after you we won't always kind of like you know try and shoot you down um there needs to be that decorum and, and, and like you said like other but just more for the sake of dignity of the ummah um so i think that's a, a possible you know one solution on that front um but i think more um on a more deeper level what it's going to take is for muslims to understand islam that's the biggest problem that we've got at the moment. We've got Muslims that are Muslims by name, but they don't understand the essence of Islam. There's so many issues that has, that, that kind of ties into, but you know, it's something simple as our understanding of Tawhid has deteriorated. Mm. God is a thing. Do you get what I mean? He's, he's an external... He's just there, and we interact with him when we want something. You know, when we're when we're going on a low, t when we're low, we'll pray to him, and when we're, you know, when we're high, we'll forget him. But we don't understand what his essence is, and I think the more Muslims invest their time in trying to understand and build that relationship with God, and not a superficial relationship that oh, I'm doing this to get to heaven, not a ritualistic relationship, a a, a truly you know deep uh, understanding of it, then what you'll see is that you will stop littering. It will become something as little as that. You will stop littering because you understand that you're on God's earth and you have no right to pollute his earth. So you'll become an environmentalist by the end of the day. You will feed that homeless person because you understand that's a person that belongs to God and it's your moral object, you know, moral responsibility decreed by God to feed that homeless person. Then you'll become an activist for homelessness by the end of the day. And so on and so forth, racism and all these kind of different issues. The more we understand that God is at the heart, beating heart of all these things, we will naturally incline towards it, and that's the human fitra that will come out. 
Um, so I think we need more investment internally, actually, as individuals. Mm. Um, and I think you know what that's what we're trying to do with the Muslim vibe. And we're also trying to connect that dot now, right? So you become activated, you become aware, you become conscious. And inshallah, we try to provide a platform to other organizations such as Impact, right? That now, okay, fine, you've reached that consciousness. You want to speak out against Islamophobia? Here's an organization that you can be part of that are leading the fight. Um, and that's what we need to do. Brilliant. Um, and I guess just to finish, how can people get in touch with yourself? How can they engage with MPAC? So they can either message us on Facebook. We're quite active in replying to messages there. Um, uh, they can uh, mes- uh, go to our website, uh, message us there. Um, and yeah, I mean, or they can, if they, if they can um, add me on my Facebook as well, I'm happy to add Muslims that are looking to actually get involved, get more active. And yeah. I'll, I'll send you a friend request today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put the links in the bottom of the We'll put all the links in the bottom of the description. Thank you. Um, I guess just to kind of conclude, we obviously started out asking the question, um, are we going to face a new Muslim genocide? And I personally think the best response from today was just from Imran saying the fact that we're asking the question is problematic in itself. Mm. Um, there's, I guess, you know, in, in the UK and in the West at large, there's, there's a, a lot of issues that I think Muslims face. Um, and looking at solutions, a lot of it internally, Hasib was saying, was, was looking at ourselves first and bettering ourselves before we try and externally change our state, um, which I think makes a lot of sense to be honest because a lot of the time we're seeing people get out there and, and doing things but they haven't quite figured things out themselves. You know, you know what the problem is with doing that as well so I, just yeah. add, I know you were in conclusion phase but the music is playing in the background sometimes it happens and I've seen this before in yeah. fact this has even happened with me before is if you go about it the wrong way, wrong way I, you become all excited about a cause mm. right without actually identifying who you are then what happens sometimes you'll become betrayed by the cause itself right because you're not working you're, you're not doing the cause for the cause's sake mm. you're doing it to affect a change and this is what I love about Islam it's not about that you don't do a good thing to achieve a good thing you do the good thing because it's the good thing to do it's the right thing to do do you get what I mean so what happens sometimes is that people will be part of a cause mm. the leader of that cause may go on a bender right yeah then they they destroy they 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 fall apart yeah. right because they don't know what to do now they were only in it because of the leader right but they weren't actually in it for what it was meant yeah, to be do you get what i mean yeah. and so if you build yourself first and then achieve that then it's it's it's, it's an et- eternal objective yeah and you'll always do it and at the same time people have their own journeys i remember when i was younger even though i was kind of doing it for the sake of allah i really wanted to help people mm. right but then i realized that people don't want to be helped yeah so then i started to break down i'll be yeah. like how am i going to continue on that path mm. and then i was like well no i'm going to do it completely for the sake of allah mm. yeah that's the only reason um, and so like sometimes you just need to take action in order to have that reflection yeah that's also very true breakdown yeah. in order for you to really understand for you to purify yourself mm. and uh, i think the the has it's all about moving towards allah being that person of justice for the sake for the sake of allah and then what will, allah will teach you through life what your what your inconsistencies what your hypocr- hypocrisies are and, and and through that path purify you inshallah mm. and, very very good point. Yeah, maybe that is the way it needs to be done. Maybe we do need to break before we can be f- together. If that makes sense. I think on that philosophical note, <laughs> we should um, draw close to the podcast. Uh, thank you both for for joining me this week, um, and for our listeners and viewers, please do subscribe to the Muslim Buyer Podcast. Follow us on our social media channels. 
Um, and yeah, we'll be back next week, inshallah. Uh, I've been your host, Salim Qasim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wahad helps you become a halal investor in minutes. Clients from over 40 states have already started their journey with us. Here's how it works. First, we ask you eight simple questions to recommend a portfolio based on your risk profile. You then select your portfolio and simply sign up online. Your account can be approved in seconds. After you fund your account, we'll place the trades for you. All you have to do then is sit back and monitor your performance. It actually is that easy.